Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the February 4th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Tonight, Wayne Sampson takes us to the red carpet of last week's Big Queer Convo, a panel discussion on LGBT representation in television over the last 50 years. Steve Pride visits with the men behind RuPaul and the media juggernaut that is World of Wonder. And also talks with Rupert Everett, whose film The Happy Prince is being released on Video On Demand next Tuesday. Plus an audio essay my co-host Abby Deese has done in which she asked the question, who's the man? I'm still trying to figure it out. Aren't we all? But first, let's spill some tea. The honest tea. Now, we had fun with a story about um, Drag Queen Story Hour last week. I think ago. we need to talk about Drag Queen Story Hour every single week. I think it so, does too. Not get old. And it And it delivers stories to us every week, this time back in Texas. Because, yeah. of course, Texas, because it involves firearms. But a um, <clears throat> a radio host there with a show called Raging Bull Elephant Radio. Which is apparently very popular in certain circles, which I, are not my circles. <laughs> and he put on his MAGA hat and packed his gun and went to, as one does, the public library to Drag Queen Story Hour. And they threw him out because he, they already had. Now this is legal. It's, is it a warrant for trespassing? They had a no no trespassing in right. order. It was just a, a order saying you know like having a temporary restraining order. Right. Don't get don't come to the library. Yeah. You've already messed it up. Yeah, he's been there before, yeah. and he was photographing children without anybody's permission. So they had this, and he would not give up. And they kept waving in his face, and and so he's posted it on YouTube. If you want to go, well, see somebody, it. the police had to come, and I he, know. he went there Quite fifteen minutes early, waiting for Drag Queen Story Hour for the purpose of protesting it. And this goes under the heading of so many stories right now, which is, who's the victim? Because according to him, he's the victim here. Um, He posted a video of the interaction with the police where they're Mm -hmm. telling him to go away. And he's saying, where's the law? Forgetting that there is actually an order saying you're not supposed to trespass because you're being a jerk in the library. And they are waving it in his face during most of this. Um, the title of the video is Arrested for Being a Christian. So because he's the victim. they're so put upon. Yeah. And But who, who thinks I'm going to a children's story hour of any kind with a gun? Yeah. Oh, and they found it. I mean, yeah. he wasn't brandishing no, a gun no, 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 for no. all yeah, we know. He wasn't, no. But it was found on his person. Yeah. And he was detained. Oh, and then in the car he had chest you know the police car right. he had chest pains and they took him to the hospital mm-hmm. um but yes he he you know in the video he says i pay taxes i'm a member of the press then you actually see in the video that shows that he has a white house press pass which i kind of don't think is real oh and then he says we have a bunch of homosexuals that are molesting children they are doing it with your help to the houston police because that's what you would do take your child to the library to be molested by homosexuals <laughs> I, just, I don't understand the thought process at all and yet when these Stories come up, you can't help you. You've got to talk about them. And the victim stuff here. Yes, that yes. this guy is the victim in this story. Yes. and I am fascinated that we can all look at these two things: Drag Queen Story mm-hmm. Hour, which I think is a lovely and wonderful thing. Which mm-hmm. I, if I had children, I would make them go. Oh yeah, and then they'd hate it and, and park then, them yes, there. I'd park them there. Yeah, um, because I think it's beautiful and you know, celebrates all the right things. Um, And then other people look at that and see that as a terrible threat and somehow infringing on their rights. And to the credit of the neighborhood in Texas where this happened, there were no people gathering around supporting this man in any way. Nope. They wanted to hear a good story. That's all they wanted. So we will keep covering Drag Queen Story Hour because I think it's one of the best things that's happening right now in our libraries. Good storytelling, fashion tips, same place. Drag Queens. Thank you. Libraries. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with this. And another topic we are going to revisit, Covington. (laughs) Speaking of, who's the victim? I know. Oh, and who's the victim and how is it that we can all look at this and see what we want to see? I'm pretty sure that I'm right. So this this wasn't the kids that you're familiar with no, who were who but this were... is the same diocese. Yes. So the same diocese, the Catholic Diocese of Covington, um, that covers Covington Catholic High School, um, in another school that is in their diocese, mm-hmm. um, they banned the class valedictorian um, in May's graduation, mm-hmm. last year's graduation, from speaking because he is gay and gender nonconforming. Or at least they yeah. didn't they didn't admit that that's why, but it's kind of obvious. And so the speech was delivered 
in the yard next door, was He went it? to a field nearby yeah. and gave a speech anyway without yeah. permission. And so his name is Christian Bales, a gay, gender, nonconforming valedictorian. Um, he sounds wonderful. But so for folks that somehow or another have missed this, right. Covington Catholic High School, the students were the subject of a viral video um, in which they were at an anti-abortion rally in D.C. on January 18th wearing MAGA hats. And they clashed with an Omaha tribe elder, Nathan Phillips, at the Indigenous Indigenous Peoples March that was and, happening And we're just going to set aside a bunch of white teenage boys in an anti-abortion march. Yeah. That's not even the point of this no. conversation. <laughs> Oddly enough, that's not the point of the conversation. Yeah, it's not. But it really does. So, And so, of course, there was all this, like, no, the boys were doing the right thing. They were the victims here. But it does sound like the Covington Diocese has some issues with tolerance in their high schools. I'm just going to say. I know. And and I don't know what to say. Catholic, Kentucky, You, it's just, it's all... Tragic. So, but I love Bale's Christian Bale's mom, and I guess the school oh, content. Right. So this is how they are pretty much gathering that this was yeah. because he was gay and gender right. nonconforming. Because the school contacted Christian Bale's mother for assurance that he would not wear makeup or feminine attire while giving his speech, because clearly that is a threat to you know, the world as we know it. Um, and so, like we said, he gave the speech. But Bales himself told NBC News that he said he wasn't surprised at all about what happened in D.C. And he said it was only a matter of time before um, that something this school community did would blow up to this degree. And I think they need to be held accountable. Well, so and that's interesting. And kudos for the courage to hold to give the speech anyway, anyway, even if it's only in the field next door, because I, I think if I were in that position, even if I were young and brave enough and current, I would I would just get mad and think, fine, fine, you just have your I know. stupid know, And graduation. I just, just stump off. Stump exactly. Off. But I love exactly. that he, he's the class valedictorian. Yeah. And so he's like excelling, yeah. being fantastic, yeah. being himself, you know, honestly, proudly being himself, standing up for what's right. So I think we're going to hear from Christian Bales again in some wonderful way. And we'll not forget the name. It's easy to remember. I know. It's very easy to remember. So, you know, another heading. (laughs) Wenzel, you were saying? Well, I I was going to say, and I stole it from you, a step forward, a step back. Yeah. Uh, You want to start with a step back? Yeah, a step back. (laughs) So I know I kind of go on about this, but folks... We do not have equality in this country yet. Mm -mm. We really don't. We have no equality on the federal level. We're going backwards. And so in Arkansas, come on, Arkansas, you can do better than this. I know, but Uh, it wasn't Florida, it wasn't uh, Texas, and it wasn't Georgia. No. So so we're expanding. We're in Florida. We're in Arkansas, not Florida. (laughs) Um, But we are talking about a city called Fayetteville in Arkansas. Um, The Supreme Court of Arkansas struck down a Fayetteville anti-discrimination ordinance because it conflicts with state law. You might ask, what is the state law that it conflicts with? Well, it's the absence of right. the state yeah. law. There it's is a state law that does not cover non-discrimination. Right. There is LGBTQ. no state project protection for LGBTQ people. And so because Fayetteville had the temerity to pass an anti-discrimination law on their own, the Arkansas Supreme Court found that awfully naughty of them and struck down their ability to enforce that law. And the disingenuous explanation by people in the state government were that there's no point in having an anti-discrimination law because in the time that it's been in effect, nobody's ever filed a suit Mm. falling back on that anti-discrimination law, maybe because people thought discrimination is not a good thing. Yeah, So let's not do it. And for that thought, you can thank Bart Hester, Republican (laughs) state senator of Arkansas, in case you know him or want to Google him. That is Bart Hester, Republican state senator for Arkansas, Um, yes, who brought the case because we don't need it. And so, of course, that was a good use of um, government resources and tax dollars was to get rid of it then. But and he's sh- not quite a victim, and yet so victim adjacent. Victim adjacent. <laughs> but a shout out for the Fayetteville City Attorney Kit Williams, who said the existence of the ordinance has been the reason that they have actually not had reports of discrimination. So he has sworn to keep fighting. So I love Fayetteville City Attorney Kit Williams. And because I'm not big on research, now I wish I knew why they had that non-discrimination in the first place. I mean. Did something happen in Fayetteville? Well, I think Fayetteville is supposed to be a pretty cool, um, yeah. diverse town that is, you know, kind of like the Austin of Arkansas. There's a college there, I'm sure. I'm sure there is. But step forward. Step forward. <laughs> Meanwhile, in New Jersey. 
So New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy just signed a bill requiring the State Board of Education to include instruction and information that portrays um, the political, economic, and social contributions of persons with disabilities and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals. And the only other state that has this law? Yes. California. Yeah. So, so 48 states. more to go. <laughs> yeah. So really don't have that much work um, to do. But um, the governor issued a press release uh, that said this law would require LGBTQ Americans, as well as Americans with disabilities, would require that LGBTQ Americans, as well as Americans with disabilities, are included and recognized for their significant historic contributions to the economic, political, and social development of New Jersey and the United States. So good on Governor Phil Murphy and the people of New Jersey. And this is one of those this things, too, that if you are not a gay person who was raised as a gay child, you think, well, who even needs to know that about somebody? But if yeah, we yeah, had really heard- do. Yeah, if we had heard that growing up and known that there were people like us in history, it would have Wouldn't made an enormous wonderful? difference. No, I mean, I think about this. I think about what I knew Radcliffe Hall and mm-hmm. Quentin Crisp. That was about it. Yeah, and I didn't know who either of them were till well after high school. Cause well, I was, corn- <laughs> I was a book nut, but so you, were you. You were young, sophisticate. Yeah, uh, but I, I was on military bases overseas. We did not have Well of Loneliness. You didn't have library. a good library. That's <laughs> no. the difference. <laughs> Nope, not at all. That so, is the difference. So now we step have forward, step back. many, many, many more people um, to look up to and know about and give us some pride. Well, maybe next week we'll be talking about something we haven't talked about before, but we've always got Drag, drag Queen, Queen Story Hour and probably We're the trans ban. Yeah, the, yeah. the military trans ban and Drag Queen Story Hour. We're on it. Okay. On Wednesday, our newest IMRU talent, Wayne Sampson, left the valley for the glitter and glamour of a red carpet in Hollywood. He's fresh, he's young, he's bright, and he took a recorder and brought back this star-studded report. It's Wednesday, January 30th. I'm Wayne Sampson for IMRU. On the red carpet at The Village at Ed Gould Plaza. Tonight is the Big Queer Convo, 50 Years of Queer, a panel discussion focused on LGBTQ representation in television. On tonight's panel, we have actor, producer, Peter Page, TV writer, Jennifer Hoppy House, and transgendered actor, producer, and rapper, D'Lo. Peter Page is an actor best known for Queer as Folk, and more recently as the producer of The Fosters, and its spinoff, Good Trouble. Peter, how do you feel about LGBT progress on TV in the last half century? Look, we've come a long way in 50 years, but we still got a long way to go. And this is by no means the Emerald City. We're somewhere near where you find the Tin Man in the woods. We're on the road, we found some friends, we found some allies, we've found our voices, but there's still a lot more work to do before we're a fully realized, fully seen part of culture. When you're at work, do you feel that your voice is respected with your peers? I do. I'm lucky. I'm the boss, <laughs> so that helps now. I was an actor for years, and then I became a writer-director, and I created The Fosters and Good Trouble. So, yeah, I feel very fortunate. I feel seen and heard, and I feel that I've had an incredible opportunity to help other people be seen and heard, and that's sort of one of the things I'm most proud of. Have you thought about creating a task force for LGBT people to make sure that more LGBT people play the roles that they represent? Uh, Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting idea. I haven't heard any sort of rumblings about that, but it's a great idea. As far as this generation, do you feel that it's too PC or that we are, it's good to be PC? Look, I think PC for the sake of PC is useless. I think if you want to have a, a real conversation about how people want to be seen and how to honor other people's experiences, that's fantastic. The acronym PC has become such a throwaway that uh, it's been used to denigrate what is really just thoughtfulness. Jennifer Hoppy House is a TV writer who has worked on the series Grace and Frankie, Get Shorty, Nurse Jackie, and Damages. Jennifer, how far do you think we've come in 50 years? There are huge breakthroughs, and then there's a lot of steps backward. So Jesse Smollett got some unknown chemical thrown on him, and he got the shit beat out of him. But... In 1977, there was that wonderful episode of All in the Family where Edith has a crisis of faith because Beverly, he called himself a transvestite, was beaten to death, and she had a crisis of faith. So life has imitated art 25, 30 years later, and it's amazing that we're so visible now, and we're out there, but it's also dangerous. It's still dangerous. It's absurd, and I think where the country is has given people with prejudices 
more permission to be proud about it, which is inconceivable to me, but that's where we are. So I think representation on television is, is all the more important because I think people need to see who we are and who we love and that we're no different. We have the same marital fights. We have the same angst. We have the same worries about money. We have the same issues raising children. We just happen to love members of our own sex. And it's natural. It's genetic. We're born with it. That's much more in the ether now, but the resistance to it is, um, is odd. So where have we come? We've come really far and we've come nowhere at all. As a person who is creating your own content, um, and along the way, I'm sure you've been a part of other people's content, do you feel like they, they were very supportive of you being out or making sure they represent LGBT people with the best lie and the best intentions? I've never had an issue. I was telling Alan yesterday, I think women, especially if they present as sort of straight looking, you know, men in power find that titillating. I think gay men have a lot harder time. So I've always been welcomed in the Hollywood community. I'm not, I've never been a pariah. And I've always been able to write straight people and not often enough gay people. But I think that's something as my star rises is something I want to do something I feel I can do very naturally, and I want to present gay people, especially gay women, as people who have problems and just happen to be gay, people who have conflicts and just happen to be gay. And I think that's where we are now. I think it used to be that it was all about coming out, and it used to be all about loving someone and, and having AIDS, or whatever the issue was in the last 20 years, that's what the narratives have been about. But I think it's time that we present as human beings who have conflicts and issues and neuroses and sadness and joy, just like everybody else. So that's where we are. So from here, where would you like to see the industry go? I want to see LGBTQ people represented as much as they are part of the population. And I think we're getting there. I read a statistic, and I may be wrong because I'm terrible at math and numbers don't stick, but something like 17% of characters on television are LGBTQ. That's pretty good. It's 7% above what we are in the population, which speaks to the fact that I think that there are a lot of gay people and there's a lot of diversity, not enough diversity, but there are a lot of gay people in show business, which is great. It makes show business fun. It makes it joyous. And do you feel that LGBT people are supporting other LGBT people in Hollywood to make sure that they can come in and not be shut out? Creative people tend to drift toward the arts because that's where we feel most comfortable. And as a result, a lot of gay people are in power here. And a lot of gay people are under them. And that's why we see 17% of characters on television represented a lot more sympathetically than they used to be. And Nobody's in the closet anymore. I mean, we've come a long way in, the, in, the, in that sense, but there's further to go in terms of the country. In 1993, when he was 19, actor Wilson Cruz came out to his parents and Hollywood as Richie Vasquez on My So-Called Life, becoming the first openly gay actor to play an openly gay character as a series regular on a television show. Wilson, how do you think we've progressed in 50 years? Oh, well, I mean, in 50 years, we've clearly seen a lot of change. Back today, we have numerous LGBTQ characters on television, and we have them on streaming services and cable and broadcast network television. So there's a lot more content, and so there's a lot more opportunity for our stories to be told. So do I believe we've made progress? Obviously, yes. But do I believe that we can still do more work? Yes. There was a study a couple of years ago, from GLAAD actually, that said that about 20% of people identify as LGBTQ. And for the most part, right now, we see about 8% of characters on television that are LGBTQ. So if we want television to mirror our society and to look like the world that we live in, we still have a lot of work to do. And do you think it's here to stay, the progress, or do you think it's just like the hot thing and, and the studios don't have any choice really because it's or else they're going to be called out? Well, I think that's up to us, right? It's really up to our community to 
keep the pressure and the heat on networks so that we are part of the stories that are being told. None of this happened by accident. Networks didn't just suddenly decide that they wanted LGBTQ people on TV. There was a lot of work behind the scenes working with networks for decades to make them understand why this was important and why it would benefit them. So I believe we will continue to see progress, but that really is going to take work on our part. We obviously are seeing a lot of trans roles and a lot of gay and lesbian roles on film now. When do you think that kind of took a turn for the better? I was thinking about this earlier today. We really saw a shift after streaming services showed up because I think people were willing to take a risk. We saw shows like Orange is the New Black and Transparent. And I think those were test cases for the industry and their success and their critical success really made a difference. Since then, we've seen a lot more of these characters show up on all platforms. And as um, a gay man in television and entertainment, do you feel that your voice is supported on set to um, make sure that LGBT people are represented well in entertainment? As a gay male on television, do you feel that your input is supported on set and within the community? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm on two shows right now, 13 Reasons Why and more importantly, Star Trek Discovery, and I have great relationships with those writers and those producers, and they absolutely welcome my input, and I am not shy about sharing it. That's been my way of working for 25 years. Transgendered actor, producer, and rapper D'Lo came out three times as gay, as having a girlfriend, and as trans. D'Lo, as a panelist tonight, how do you feel about our progress in television? I feel like we've definitely come so far, but I still feel like there's a lot farther we could go. But I feel like more than anything, we need to up our game to make sure that the stories that we're sharing really resonate with people in order to change mind frames. That's what I feel like is missing right now is a lot of compassion, and I feel like storytelling and good TV, good films, good all of that, it's the most incredible tool to changing the way that people as a nation start thinking about things. So I think we just need to up our game, put in everything that we want to say and everything that we want to share from our hearts and put it all into our art and share it all over the damn globe and be relentless in doing so. How do you think that's going to happen? I think we need more communists. (laughs) Let's do it. I think we need a lot more thinkers working with artists and trying to figure out what do we need to just turn this hatred, not turn it off, but just completely eradicate it. It's just out of control right now. And I feel like whether it's queer media or if it's folks of color doing it, wherever the power is, we have to take charge right there and make sure that we're being relentless. What I'm saying to make it a bite-sized peanutty thing is um, the people who really understand what's happening in this world right now or in this nation need to come forward and start talking to creators as well so that we can start thinking about like how are we gonna not just hit this in an artistic way but in a smart political way as well. This has been Wayne Sampson working the streets for IMRU with Peter Page, Jennifer Hoppy House, Wilson Cruz, and rapper D'Lo on the red carpet here at the Big Queer Convo. Back to you, Wenzel and Abby. That was great, Wayne. <laughs> I love that you're giving Peter Page advice. He's like, oh, well, you're right. <laughs> I know. I want to see Peter Page in I'm the Big Gay Boss. Oh, okay. I know. Well, so the communist thing? Oh, oh, oh I just think I, I think I think we need more communists is a T-shirt we could sell oh, yeah. by the truckload here at KPFK. Yeah. So thumbs up. Well, we are looking forward to many more fabulous reports from Wayne Sampson. Sounds like a fun time. So still to come, Steve talks to Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato about World of Wonder. And Rupert Everett talks about Oscar Wilde and his movie, The Happy Prince. Plus an audio essay from Abby Dees. Hmm. Hmm. Stick around. We'll be right back. The Harlem Renaissance, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known as one of the most culturally romantic periods in American history, the Harlem Renaissance would leave a lasting impression. It all began in the very early 1900s when a large migration of Southern Blacks transformed the neighborhood just north of New York City's Central Park into the most populous African-American community in the country. By the 1920s, Harlem had become the epicenter of Black American art, music, and literature, and soon was exploding with nightlife. 
The Jazz Age Harlem offered an openness and freedom for those in the life, the term often used for those attracted to their own sex. While the word homosexual was never mentioned, gays and lesbians found a place to flourish. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Anna Edwards. Hello, my name is Leslie Jordan from the big new series, The Cool Kids. Y'all, now listen to IMRU Radio Magazine every Monday night from 7 to 8 on KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And isn't now the perfect time for an audio essay from Abby Dees? Sure. It happened again. Some friends asked my partner Tracy and me, is one of you like more the man in the relationship? This question doesn't upset me, but it's still weird. After all, I've always thought Tracy and I were pretty much on the same spot on the gender continuum. But people keep asking, is one of you the man? Here's what prompted it this time. I put pictures up on Facebook of Tracy and me at a she-she fundraiser. Tracy wore a print dress, and I wore black cigarette pants and a tailored blouse. We both wore makeup and heels, though if we're nitpicking, mine were just kitten heels. Now, there are any number of reasons why I wasn't wearing a dress, beyond the basic fact that my outfit totally rocked. Among those reasons, I'm deathly white, and legs pantyhose in suntan shade went out of style, if they ever were in style, in the 80s. Another reason is that I have a nasty scar on my shin from walking into a broken flower pot. And dresses give my rather cylindrical body a chintz-draped pink column look. Not included in this list is anything having to do with gender roles. But in fairness to my friends, they didn't ask just because of that one picture. They'd noticed that most of the time, when they see Tracy, she's in makeup and clothes straight from the dry cleaners. I'm usually in jeans. Maybe lipstick and sunblock. Maybe. So it's not so off the wall for them to wonder if there's something more to this than fashion. What's funny, though, is that they are as much flouters of traditional roles as we are, which is one of the things we love about them. In other words, they're a typical modern straight couple, two generations out from mandatory boy-girl conformity. What I get from this is a reminder of just how deeply worn the gender expectation grooves still are even if real life has much more room for variety. Like to me, more obvious questions about Tracy's and my personal style choices might be, Abby, are you a lazy ADD-addled slug in the morning? Or, Abby, do you just not accept the fact that you're a grown-up now and should probably dress like one? I would have to answer yes to both those questions. But for the sake of argument, let's say that there is something to this question of Tracy's and my gender roles. After all, we're not any more immune to those expectations than my friends are. It's the model we all grew up with in some way or another about how couples are expected to interact. Is one of us more like a typical man or woman than the other? Honestly, I'd have to say yes. It looks like this. When it comes to heaving bags of fertilizer to the backyard and grumbling afterwards about how she shouldn't have done that to her back, Tracy's the man. When it comes to wiring a stereo or fixing the computer, I'm the man, and Tracy's the woman making endless suggestions over my shoulder that I try to ignore. When it comes to making charts of finances and household numbers, Tracy's the man, and I'm definitely the ditzy platinum blonde. But when it comes to picking up old socks and underpants from the floor and wondering if Tracy even notices, oh, I am so the woman. However, when it comes to being patient with a curling iron and mascara, Tracy's the total woman, and I'm the man, forever striving to bring my morning grooming ritual in under two minutes. And when it comes to emotional communication, Tracy's the monosyllabic man, and I'm the harumphing woman. But Tracy's still got those big, delicate, girly feelings. Does that answer the question? This is Abby Deese.
And this commentary was based on my syndicated column, Thinking Out Loud, distributed by Q Syndicate. Something to think about, although I think around our house, it's um, tricky, too, because Bob cooks and puts clothes together well, and I'm the one who gets moody and irritable. Oh, you're just big gay men. I, I, I could have explained that to you years ago, Wenzel. Does anyone still ask you that? Uh, we don't have any friends who haven't known us for years. So, oh, okay. No. There you go. All right. No. Okay, We've well. We've kind of aged out of the question, frankly. Yeah, I think we're kind of getting to that point, too, which is a relief. Anyway, well, with the recent conclusion of this season of Drag Race All-Stars and Valentina, quote, singing, end quote, on the low-rent TV version of the classic musical... All the gays are gabbing about the same thing. We're not sure what that thing is, but mm-hmm. we've been talking about the powerhouse duo that runs Queer Hollywood, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato from World of Wonder Productions. Dancing in Before World of Wonder founders Randy Barbato and Fenton Bailey ran a reality TV empire. They were a disco pop rock duo called the Fabulous Pop-Tarts performing at clubs in downtown New York City. They formed World of Wonder in 1981 to self-distribute their records and promote the neophyte careers of fabulous friends like RuPaul. I'm Randy Barbado. I'm Fenton Bailey. Randy and I met in the East Village in the 80s and we went to a club called The Pyramid and we saw these amazing drag shows. And we looked at each other and we were like, this is art, this is incredible, this is great work. This should be seen beyond The Pyramid. The idea that drag is men in dresses or the idea that drag, to use politically correct terminology, is transphobic fancy dress is complete nonsense. It is the ultimate creative act of taking the canvas of your body and inventing something rich and strange, not necessarily with a lot of money, but using the power of imagination, because that's what it is. And we've always felt there's a singular profundity in that expression, you know, you're born naked and the rest is drag. We're all in a kind of uniform, and that uniform is, like it or not, a kind of chosen presentation or image It's all drag. And by drag, I mean true creativity, real imaginative work that is is significant. Fenton and I, when we met in the 80s in the East Village, back when the East Village was the East Village, we were going to (laughs) NYU film school. We used to cut classes to go to the Pyramid happy hour. And truly, we'd quit film school and enrolled at the Pyramid. It really was the turning point for us. And it has been to this day. I mean, so many of the people that we met there now, we're still friendly with. They continue to inspire us. And it makes sense. We identify with and connect with outsiders because we grew up as outsiders. That's what all of our work is about. And it's not only about people who are on the fringe, but it's about that commitment to helping people who don't identify with that understand that actually we're all outsiders. We all, whether it's Maplethorpe or Tammy Faye or Monica Lewinsky or RuPaul, it's about their humanity. It's about what we have in common with people who we perceive as being other. The reality is they aren't other, they are us. That's who we are. And that's who we have always been. That's who we've always been attracted to. And our life's work has been about sharing those people, those worlds with everybody else and getting other people to understand, actually, you know what? That's who you are. Your life's work has been so prolific. I went on IMDb this morning. I'll just run through these real quick. And they just kept paging down, paging (laughs) down, paging down. We work with a lot of people, though. We have a production company called World of Wonder. It's a production company filled with artists, filled with outsiders, filled with people like us who who make great things. So we're blessed. World of Wonder actually did not begin as what it is today. It was to represent the fabulous Pop-Tarts. And that your relationship with RuPaul goes all the way back to those days. Our relationship with Ru does go back 
A long way. I saw the uh, video for Whore on YouTube. <laughs> that was from the Christmas special. Yeah, the Christmas special we did for Channel 4, where the meatpacking district was still then the meatpacking district. Yes. And we shot that commercial for RuPaul's Hall, for She Who she Is. Who is. <laughs> We've known RuPaul for over 30 years. We, we were playing in Atlanta, performing in Atlanta, and Ru introduced us. And I think we knew then that Ru really was the one who belonged on stage. Yeah, she was um, just like... <laughs> rather than us. We've known from the moment we first saw Ru that, oh my God, every minute he's not on TV is a crime to humanity. He was fully realized. He was. He was fully realized Absolutely. 30 years ago. He was saying, everybody say love, you're born naked and the rest is drag. Then he was complete. And we could have these kinds of conversations we had with him then. He was spiritual. He had a vision. Yeah. He had a list of the things he wanted to accomplish in his life. Don't you remember when we saw him in Atlanta and he was wheat posting yeah. posters that said RuPaul is everything? It was like, oh my God. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Randy and I just looked at each other and was like, that mother's a star. We really did feel that he was a star. And it was just a question of the rest of the world catching up. And ultimately, we think it's a really good thing because we are in an age when with the rise of Donald Trump, with the refugee crisis, with terrorism. We need to keep open hearts and open minds. There's a lot of messaging out there to close down and to shut people out. But that is not the way forward. And I just think that someone like Rue and the hundred plus drag queens now that have been on Drag Race, uh -huh. you know, they really help us to open our hearts and open our minds and the work of Robert Maplethorpe and, you know, the incredible artistry of Big Frida and even, you know, Frederick and Ryan from yeah. Million Dollar Listings. The great thing is these are all characters who live their life out loud. You don't have to be gay, but who just without apology, without shame, have the courage to be themselves and not let other people's ideas silence them or not edit themselves to accommodate themselves to this false idea of normality. Because as Randy said, normality doesn't exist. We're all ultimately a minority of one. So everyone's a little bit gay. When people start talking down on reality television, it always makes you think that's not one thing. There are several kinds of reality television. There's several levels of quality and integrity. And really, ultimately, all of it reality scripted, unscripted, competition elimination, whatever you want to call it, it's really all storytelling. We don't like to trash other TV, but I do think our stuff is stuff we're attracted to. So there's some things out there we're never going to make because we're not attracted to it. We're not really into violence, so we're not going to make table tossing shows. We and the people who we work with just work on stuff we're passionate about. So there's some stuff out there that I don't particularly like. And I know we're never going to be doing that stuff because we're not passionate about it. Life's too short. Two queens stand before me. Ladies, this is your last chance to impress me and save yourself from elimination. The time has come for you to lip sync for your life. Do you think the show has changed drag? I think that the show hasn't changed drag. I think it has created more opportunity. I mean, the interesting thing and the thing that we're completely committed to with Drag Race is there's a winner every season, but everyone's a winner who's on Drag Race. We're committed to just growing drag and growing the art of drag and using Drag Race to create that interest and excitement about this art form. And what's great about this show, and it's unique to it, to all other competition reality shows, is that we have 100 drag queens who have been on that show, and almost all of them have careers now. They get booked. They make money. We have kind of reinvigorated 
people's interest in drag, which is so important. It's so important, especially now, because drag queens are the Marines of the LGBTQ community. Their high heels are the boots. They have fought for the cause from day one. They threw the brick at Stonewall. They don't get the respect they deserve. And this show, yes, it's a TV show and it's entertainment and there's fun and there's joy, and, but it is political. We do believe for so long that these artists have gone unrecognized. And it's great that it's had the life that it's had and knock wood, it will continue because the longer it's on, the broader it can be, the more types of queens we can include. You know, we have pageant queens, comedy queens, fishy queens. We're growing it to represent all the different types of artists who are in drag. And by the way, now we also have DragCon, which this year will be the second year, May 4th, at the Los Angeles Convention Center. Last year, there were 14,000 people at DragCon. There were families, children, all kinds of drag queens. And this year, it's going to be double the size. So we've really tapped into a tribe of people out there, people who love drag, people who do drag. And our commitment is to make it as inclusive as possible. And, you know, it's hard. It's challenging because... We can only have like 10 queens a year on. And it's funny, after the first couple seasons, people are like, well, you're going to run out of drag queens. Uh Uh-uh. No, Mm -hmm. we aren't. Because there's a whole new generation of young drag queens. Plus, the older drag queens now are understanding it's okay to be on Drag Race. So Drag Race is really a platform or a stage. I suppose you could say that traditionally TV has been drag queen resistant. Drag queens belong on TV, no question. The small screen is perfect for the big visuals and the big hats. It's just perfect medium. First came Drag Race, then Drag Con. The next thing for us is Drag TV. I mean, we want a network just filled with drag queens. You have a YouTube channel now, correct? Yes, Wow Presents, where a number of the girls, like Alyssa Edwards, there are a number of queens who have shows on Wow Presents. What is the best part of being you? Mm. Well, well, I guess the best part is it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, sure, it's hard work, but it's really more fun and enjoyable. And we really do love what we do and feel really lucky to be able to do it. And I think that's the best part. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it gets challenging when you're making TV and when you're dealing with people who are attracted to the lights. Sometimes they get it twisted and they forget that there's actually room for everyone at the table. So that can be challenging. But when that's not part of the equation, when people get... I love it when people get what we're doing, that we're just trying to bring more people to the table. DragCon is such, like, that's a great thing. That's one of the best things that that we, what's the best thing about being you is getting to do something like DragCon because it's the total manifestation of everything we're about. And everyone gets to participate in the different ways that you want to. Like, there's enough room for everyone. You know, there are a few queens who (laughs) like it's never big enough, it's never enough. But increasingly, I think people get that that's what we're about. And that's really rewarding. This has been a conversation with World of Wonder founders Randy Barbado and Fenton Bailey. Find more information at worldofwonder.net. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Anybody who doubts how much Drag Race has changed the face of drag, I remember drag when it took place on a handkerchief-sized stage in a small southern yeah. gay bar. And it was it seemed spectacular, but now once you go to DragCon, creatures, it, they seem like they're nine feet tall and so perfectly sculpted. It's, it's a whole different arena. And, you know, and he said something about people thinking that it's like transphobic fancy dress, like mm. transphobic costume. Mm-hmm. I really hope that our community has gotten past that. I think drag is beautiful and wonderful and that we're all really 
on the it same is. page about this. It is certainly involved into an intimidatingly theatrical forum. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Drag Queen Story Hour, which we just love. Anyway, oh. DragCon returns to the LA Convention Center May 24th, 25th, and 26th. And if you haven't been, you cannot believe how much fun it is. still haven't gone. Well, go. I have to go. Next Tuesday, Rupert Everett's film about Oscar Wilde, The Happy Prince, is being released on DVD and all digital platforms. If it seems like The Happy Prince was in theaters just yesterday, please realize that time moves so much faster in the Trump era. Really? I really hope that's true, actually. (laughs) Anyway, Steve Pride reports. Oscar Wilde once said, To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. And the latter years of his life are examined in an earnest new film from... My name is Rupert Everett. My film is called The Happy Prince, and it's about the life of Oscar Wilde in exile. This film came about, really, because I think in about 2005 or 2006, my career had kind of come to a standstill, and I couldn't face it. And so I thought I must try and write myself a role that maybe I could uh, play and get my career back on track. And I suppose this felt like the obvious subject to deal with or to try and write about. I I suppose, uh, you know, having embarked on a career in show business and being gay, you can't fail to look at other gay people in show business and see how they fare. And in that sense, Wilde is a kind of patron saint or a Christ figure, actually, for me. And so it seemed like the type of story that I could put everything into, somehow. It was definitely a a hard film to finance. It really is a European film. It's made out of Germany from the Bavarian Film Fund, out of Belgium, a little bit out of England, a little bit out of Italy, and a bit of equity. And that's how the whole thing came together. It's a juggling act, making those kind of movies, because you manage to get a piece of money from, say, Bavaria in January 2017, but that money only lasts for a year. And if you haven't got all the other bits of money from Eurimage or the Belgian Film Fund or the Italian Rai, if they haven't come in within that year, so the, you have juggling it together is a pretty complicated thing too. Did anyone ever say, I love your screenplay about Oscar Wilde, but does the character have to be gay? <laughs> no one did that yet. <laughs> you were one of the first film stars to be always out and open about your sexuality. I didn't really have any choice. I liked going out to clubs and uh, dancing and stuff like that. So there's no possibility, even if I'd wanted to, of living one of those cloistered gay lives where you just lived inside four walls and ordered in and continued with a show business career. For me, that wasn't how I saw the whole game, really. Uh, I saw it more about trying to express yourself somewhere. So I don't regret it. It's definitely been difficult, but I think all actors probably have something they feel has been very tough for them or difficult to overcome. In your book, Hello Darling, I'm Working, you reveal not only your sexuality, but your days as a rent boy in Paris. It would be difficult to stay closeted after that. Right, exactly. There was no possibility ever for me to hide, really, because I was always out and about on the gay scene. So it wasn't really a a choice or any lofty type of choice that I made or sacrificial choice. It was just that's how there was no possibility of me being anything else, really. Did it dampen your chances of being a bigger star? Yes, I think the problem mostly is at the very beginning when I did Another Country, my first film, I remember the reaction that you shouldn't play a gay role. It's very, very bad. You won't get any more jobs after playing a gay role. And I did get one more job, really good one, which was my next film, uh, Dance with a Stranger. But after that, no, I didn't get any other jobs. And then, uh, you know, my comeback, really, uh, I got a few jobs and I, and I developed a career in Italy, uh, which is what eventually led me to making Cemetery Man because they didn't really... I, I, I made a, a, a film with Francesco Rosi and another one, uh, I made four or five films there and I, I thought I should move to Europe and try and become a European actor and maybe that would be a little bit more forgiving or more understanding of being someone like me and in one sense that was true And then I managed to get back a little bit in Hollywood when I did My Best Friend's Wedding. And then I became really just famous for being gay, which is a difficult thing probably for an actor. But again, and the trouble with that was, at that point, uh, 
it became a commercial thing. And then all the straights wanted to play gay roles. And then once the straights wanted to play the gay roles, then the gays were out of the gay roles, too, to a certain extent. And now it's not reciprocated. The gays can't play the straight roles. No gay person gets an award for playing a straight character. But flip the script and the Academy pays sudden attention. Yeah, straight away. Full penetration. That's the difficulty of the situation. What was your biggest surprise about Oscar Wilde? I felt weirdly about Oscar Wilde always that I just knew him. So I didn't find there were any surprises much. I think the one thing that surprised me about him, but it didn't really, because I think one of the things I love about him is he's quite a selfish person. This other guy went to court with him, the guy who ran the brothel. And he was a very nice guy, actually, because he was offered immunity if he shopped Oscar. And he didn't. And so he had two years of hard labor as well. But never once is there any mention of him by any of them afterwards, which I think is such an extraordinary thing because he, you know, he did a really amazingly heroic thing in standing beside Oscar. Oscar's never mentioned him afterwards. That's the thing that slightly surprised me, this propensity that he has for selfishness. But I knew he was a selfish person. Thing is, I like him for all those things. I like him for the vanity, for the fact that he was such a big star that he thought the whole world, you know, was kind of uh, orbiting around him, which was how he made his, you know, initial major blunder. I love all those things about him. But that's, I suppose, because I come from an era before political correctness where a hero could have been still someone who was incredibly flawed. So all those things are things I love. Ahimar Yu is also doing a piece on a Pasadena production of Oscar Wilde's Portrait of Dorian Gray that portrays the protagonist as homosexual. Dorian Gray's always been a gay character. That's the whole point of when, uh, at the very beginning, Lord Henry Wotton is talking to him as he's having his portrait painted, and he reads him, and he says, you've had dreams uh, that would make you blush, and you should fulfill them. Uh, you, should, uh, you shouldn't hide them and closet them. You should uh, fulfill them. Go and do it. What do you hope audiences take away from the film? I always feel uneasy when you listen to directors and people talking about the message they want to give people. Because really, the only reason I, I made the film was to celebrate my own fascination and affection and how important Oscar's been in my life and um, has comforted me somehow in my life at various times. And I feel that all I can hope really, is that my passion and affection and fascination manages to leap through the footlights and into the hearts of the spectator. I don't know whether I could ask for more than that. I don't mean to pry, but since you were both the star and the director of The Happy Prince, did you have to sleep with yourself to get the role? Endlessly, yeah, and I'm suing. (laughs) This has been a conversation with writer-director Rupert Everett about his film The Happy Prince, a look at the final years of Oscar Wilde. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. And now I wonder if I'm supposed to be mad at Hugh Grant, because he's right. Hugh Grant, a straight man, has been playing gay men his entire career. So brave, so brave. And he just did a very British scandal, and he was wonderful at it. But, yeah, he's played a lot of gay characters. I know. And if we um, start looking at all those brave gay actors Mm. playing straight or Mm. these, you know, brave trans actors playing cis, you know, they'll they'll sweep the awards. They will. I'm sure they will. Oh, well. That is it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, director Wayne Sampson, board op Ricky Herrera, plus Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. Good Good night. night.